Hi and welcome to episode 34 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger and my guest today is Ken Doan. He probably has the most widely recognised name and work of any living Australian painter. He had his first solo show 37 years ago when he was 40 after a successful career in advertising and since then he's had nearly 100 solo shows. He's received an Order of Australia, he's achieved celebrity status in Japan and he's been a finalist on multiple occasions in the Archibald Wynne, Sulman, Dobell and Mossman Art Prizes. Ken's work is distinctive. When you think of his paintings, you might think of Sydney Harbour, painted in the brightest of colours, the Opera House, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and those sailboats. Or it might be a golden beach with abstracted figures and umbrellas dotting the sand. And you might even imagine that painting on a swimsuit or a T-shirt because, of course, Ken is also known for making his art wearable and usable. From clothing to homewares, many Australians might not have a Kendone on the wall, but it might be in their wardrobe. But I'm here to tell you, nothing beats looking at the actual painting. There's a complexity in his work through his variation of brush stroke, materials and colour, which you just can't pick up from a reproduction. I met Ken in his harbourside home in Sydney, where he also has his studio and where he lives with his wife of over 50 years, Judy. All the paintings we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Ken where he grew up. I was born in Belmore when, in Sydney when there were dairy farms around that area. Oh, yeah. Uh, a very different to what it is now. I was born in 1940. Uh, my father, I, I didn't know until I was five in the sense that he went, he was a bomber pilot and he went to England and he was in the war for five years. So I grew up in a house in Belmore, 3 Liberty Street, Belmore, with my mother, my grandmother and my mother's four sisters. Um, and that house was, you know, full of love and uh, joy. And, uh, you know, my mother and my aunts, I guess, were all doting on me. Um, Did you, what was it like, what was it like when you first met your dad? It was strange. Like, uh, mum used to have this photo beside her bed of this person called dad, who was, of course, quite, you know, unknown to me. And my mother had very bad asthma in those days. And uh, sadly, on the day that Dad came back to Australia, my mum had such bad asthma, she couldn't even go. And it was an airport somewhere out near Bankstown. And my grandfather was back from the war, my grandmother. And um, I I remember this tall man with a a uniform on, and uh, uh, it was my dad. And... um, I think for a lot of Australians of my age with, that went through similar things, your dad was very much a father figure. And mm. although I love my father and became very, very close to him as he got older, I think those first few years were quite uh, difficult. I, yeah. I was much used to being around women. My father and his brother-in-law 
they wanted to get out of the city and they went to a little town on the north coast called McLean, which is really where I grew up. And we lived in a very simple little wooden house, uh, but I thought it was just fantastic. So I it was, was an idyllic five. childhood, yeah. It was an idyllic childhood. I went fishing before school. Oh. I wore no shoes to school. Um, Did you, do you have any memories of drawing or oh, anything yeah. like that when you were a well, kid? I thank the ABC in a sense for their encouragement because the ABC had a program called The Argonauts. It came on radio, of course this is well before television, came on radio I think about 5.30 in the afternoon. And you have to remember that radios were really big, a really yeah, big I box. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And they were very Oh, you mean radio. physically big? Yeah, like physically the actual, big. The physically apparatus. big and warm. In other words, the cabinet in which the radio sat became warm. So as a little boy, we didn't have heating in the house or anything, uh, I, I would literally snuggle up against the box that the radio was in because of the warmth of the radio, not only listening to it. Anyway, the Argonauts was a terrific program. Um, what remember. was it about, the Argonauts? Well, it was based on the search for the Golden Fleece. Oh, of the course. Argonauts. Jason and, that's and the Argonauts. Jason, Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. And all the kids, you all had numbers. Uh, I was polymester 11. I remember my number. And I quite like the number 11 anyway. Anyway, they had an art section on it where um, not Justin O'Brien, Jeffrey Smart was the art teacher, if you will, on radio and spoke ah. to kids about art. And you could send in artwork. And I sent in two drawings of a couple of fishing boats on the Clarence River. And they sent me back two gold stars. Well, I thought, well, we're onto something here. Oh, and it was very encouraging. It, I can imagine and it look, would the be. Kids in the, you know, you, you were so distant from things. I, I remember also, and look, Staying in the art bit, my, my, my mother always encouraged me to draw. Mm. And it was always easier for me to draw something than to explain it. She used to say that uh, if I went to some kid's birthday party, uh, when we came home, she'd ask me what was it like, and I said, well, I'll do you a drawing of it. In other words, I was yeah. using drawing as a form of communication from a very early yeah. age. And was that encouraged at school as well? Well, no, not really. Uh, you know, again, this is, you know, oh, we, you had, you had um, slates, oh. slates, <laughs> to, to, and, oh, and, cr yeah. and chalk. You're right. This is a long time ago. Yeah, the It's a little tiny country school, yeah. slates, yeah. chalk. Once a week I was the ink monitor, which <laughs> meant you went around with this kind of thing full of ink and you filled up all the, everybody's ink wells. Oh, yeah, That was course. great. Yeah. No homework, no shoes. Uh, so if you were drawing, were you using a pencil? Yeah, I was yeah. using a pencil and crayons and my mother would always buy me bits of art materials and things like that. But I always think of it as an absolutely idyllic uh, North Country, North Coast Australian childhood. Yeah. Um, and what, and I understand when at high school they didn't teach art. Well, that's when we came to, uh, to Mossman. Oh. It, uh, like, I left McLean when I was 10. Uh, so it was, I spent from 5 to 10 
It's your boyhood, mm. which I always think is actually the most important part mm. of your upbringing. And I understand you went to art school at a very young age. I did. I How did. did that happen? So you were 14, I take it. I was 14 and a half. Well, I passed the intermediate certificate, which mm -hmm. is like the, the equivalent of year 10, I suppose. I wasn't a particularly good student. I was good at English, I was good at geography. Um, and that's, you know, mostly gazing out the window was, was, was my speciality. <laughs> well, you d did you draw a lot at that well, point? Well, I drew for myself, but there was, and I went, I, I did used to go to an art class on Saturday morning up in Gore Hill uh, because, ah. and all of that happened that my father was playing golf with a guy one day and the guy, and my father must have said, oh, you know, my son likes to draw, and he, he, he said, oh, go to this art school at Gore Hill. So I used to go there, and everybody else was playing tennis on Saturday morning. I'd go to this art class, which I was good. I liked it. Yeah. And then the teacher at that said, said, you should go to East Sydney Tech. Well, we didn't know anything. There are no artists in our family. We didn't know anything about East yeah. Sydney Tech or the art school or things like that. You know, I had very good teachers. You learn about drawing, about composition, about colour, about sculpture, about all of those kinds of things. But in a sense, you always have to teach yourself. You know, no one... You have to find it yourself. But you do... You, it's important that you go through all of those things, teaching you to see, teaching you to observe things, instruction, stuff like that. Mm. So I was pleased about that. And... You know, you must have been very young there I was. compared to the others. I was. I was. I was two or three years younger than most other people. I always called the teacher Mister. You know, Mister Badham or Mister Lum or Mister Dadswell. Um, but it was great. You know, and we. It was a pretty gentle time. It's the mid fifties. You know, rock and roll started, and so suddenly teenagers had a different kind of, even though I'd been just listening to jazz and American black music since I was very young, uh, listening to Gene Vincent and, and Little Richard and uh, um, <laughs> I was just thinking about him the other day, Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis, Christ, I saw him at the Sydney Stadium. How the great was that? And then suddenly uh, Rock Around the Clock came out with Bill Haley and rock and roll started and that whole Beatles thing started. Well, Beatles a bit later on, mm. but rock and roll started. But, you know, there was no, no one, people were drinking, a bit of drink, but there's no drugs. No one took any dope. Well, not that I knew of it anyway. Mm. That came a bit later on. But I left art school before the course finished. So was that, was that a five-year course? It was a five-year yeah. course. I left about in the fourth year. Right. And the way that it happened was this. In the end of the third year... There was a terrific art director in the city. He's dead now too, unfortunately. A terrific art director called Arthur Holland. Anyway, he got in touch with the art school and he said, look, I'll offer the brightest student you've got to come down and work with me over the Christmas period. He said, I'm not going to pay him anything. Or it could have been a her. Anyway, I, I, I was chosen. Mm. I went down there worked for Arthur. He went to New York. He was very successful in New York, but he's yeah. dead now. Well, and you went... Well, I just want to move on to, to you. you. You actually became quite big in the, in the advertising industry yeah. yourself. You became an art director, you, yeah. were in, uh, you lived creative in London, director, a creative in London. director, London and New York. Yeah, New York. Um, I won the 
with, I work with Bill, in London, I work with Bill Oddie and Tim Brooke Taylor, who be, went on to become the goodies. We won the Cannes Gold Lion Award for the best cinema commercials in the world. Yeah, that must have been a highlight. Oh, it was great. It was fantastic. Yeah. So we did that for Campari. Yeah. Why did you, uh, so 1969 you decided to come back to Australia. What was the catalyst? Well, 1969 we'd been married four years, thinking about having a family, thinking about, you know, buying somewhere. We needed to come home. I remember the day we'd gone, to, we'd gone out to uh, Windsor Great Park. It was pissing down. No, it wasn't pissing down. It was just raining. Mm. <laughs> raining. Yeah. And raining. We are in a little mini... We had a picnic. We couldn't even get out of the car. It was so wet and dark and dank. Yeah. And I said to Judy, that's it. We're on our way home. I was in Vanuatu one for a holiday, maybe somewhere like that. And I was on a beach on a Sunday night talking to Peter Brock, or the late Peter Brock, racing car driver. And he was talking with... Telling, about, telling me about how, much, how passionate he was about racing car driving. I realised I wasn't passionate about even though I was good at advertising, I wasn't passionate about it. I was passionate about painting. Yeah. So I flew back to Sydney. I walked in Monday morning and resigned and walked out. That was it. So it was that conversation that made yeah. you realise? Made me realise that if you, if you wanted to be a painter, you had to give up everything for it. Mm. You had to give it everything. Were you painting at that point? Yeah, I'd always been painting. I was painting in London. I had a tiny little studio there. I did half a dozen reasonable pictures, most of them which I left in London, one which I sent back to a mate in Australia, very early pictures in one of the books, not this one. Mm. But I realised if you want to be, if you really want to be a painter, mm. you have to be one, which means you have to give up everything. Yeah. So therefore then I found myself, I, I had a house in Mossman, up at the back of the park, had a wife, uh, a child, can we support ourselves? So yes, I wanted to be a painter. And so then I was 40 and had my first exhibition. So did you, and I understand that first exhibition was at Holdsworth Gallery. Yeah, the old Holdsworth so that was So that was basically getting into the gallery system. system. Yeah, even though I always knew in my mind that I thought I'd would be better to open my own gallery, even though I knew a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't like that, or that that would be against the structure. You know, mm. there that wouldn't have been many people doing that at no that point. No one was doing it. No. Um, but I wanted to show. I didn't want to do that first of all. I wanted to show that you could have an exhibition in a big commercial gallery, and in those days, the Holdsworth was probably the the number one. Mm. And uh, how did you get that show? Oh, I went to see Gisela Scheinberg and I, I, I showed her a couple of things and she said, well, you have to bring me the work. And I said, no, you have to come to me because some of them are really quite big yeah. and I want you to see the studio. Anyway, she arrived in the show for one day. Oh, she so she did. I had a little studio in North Sydney and right. uh, she came and she saw the work and she said, all right. She said, I'll give you a show with um, David Boyd, Arthur Boyd's brother. Oh, yeah, yeah. And a painter from Melbourne, a very decorative painter from Melbourne who I haven't quite, I don't know what happened to him. So suddenly... And what was your work like in that show? It wasn't that one, but it was... We're looking the at your most book. The moment. We're looking at Sunday, the painting Sunday. We're looking at, at Sunday. Moment. Yeah. Um, yes. I might be able to... F I don't know whether Which it's Which is a beautiful... 
anyway, vista of the, yeah of, the, of this area here. Yeah, is, of this area here and the beach and flowers and things like that. So at that point you were painting. I was painting. You were already painting like the harbour and Sydney. Yes, the harbour yeah. and Sydney. Yeah. And the most expensive painting was $1,500. It was a very long painting called Long View from the Cabin. And it didn't sell. Uh, about, about half the exhibition sold. Mm. M- mostly, you know, four or five hundred, eight hundred, something like that. And then uh, Long View from the Cabin didn't sell. But there was a very smart guy called Aaron Kaplan. Aaron had started Billy Blue with an oh, yeah. Ross Renwick years ago. Anyway. He called me up about three or four days so later. Billy Blue is like a, it's a magazine, isn't it? Ma- it was a magazine. It was a magazine. It was. It started, like an art magazine. Yes. Design. Art and design. Art and design right. started off. Anyway, he said, look, I love that painting. Uh, I'll give you $1,000 for it. Well, I needed the money. And so I sold him. I gave it to him for $1,000. Well, I was able to buy it back for $30,000 <laughs> a few years later. God. But... With that so ma- that must have been a special painting for you to, to, to want to buy it back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why was it? Was it well, special? because it was the long view of this, my first studio. I'd put so much time and so much work and so much effort into it. And uh, for my work, it's an absolutely prime, seminal picture. So um, the first exhibition is very important. It's not as important as your second exhibition, but it's important because why, suddenly... Why isn't it as important as your second one? Because in the first one, almost inevitably, some people that you know will buy from the first one. Mm. They will buy. The second one and the third one, you, you can't go back to your friends again. It's going to be new people. <laughs> yeah, but, it's got to be strangers. But, yeah. but, you know, as I said, I've had almost 100 exhibitions now, so I've had lots of openings, but they're always exciting. Even when I had that exhibition at the Holdsworth Gallery, I knew I wanted to open my own gallery, which I thought is just like a chef opening a restaurant. Mm. It's a very straightforward thing. And I didn't want to be part of a stable of other artists. Mm. Where that, I ha- do you, Sorry for interrupting you, no. but is that partly, do you think, because, you know, you had this quite a successful career as a creative director. So to go back... To be sort of almost... To have to answer to yeah, someone to else. to answer to someone. Is that yeah. part of it? Was yeah, that part of course of it? that's part of it because yeah. I knew what I was doing. I'm not saying whether it was good, bad or indifferent, but I didn't want to ask anybody else, you know, can I have a show in this year? I'm not saying everybody can do it. Mm. And I think for a long time it's always been seen by some parts of the art establishment whoever they may be, <laughs> as being yeah. a kind of a bit of against. Because the first things that people saw of mine, that really saw of mine, were not the paintings in that exhibitions, but, but the Sydney Harbour drawings, mm. and then the more commercial things that I would do. So well, I needed let's, to let's make money. Let's talk about that second show, because that was... Uh, it was called the Art Director Gallery, which That's is right. what you named it. That's and right. it was basically in your offices at That's the time right. in North Sydney. And you asked a couple of other people That's to right. have a group show, that, That's right. that 1981 exhibition. That's right. But can you tell me about the T-shirts? Okay. In the first Holdsworthy exhibition, I did a drawing of Sydney Harbour. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know where it is. I was looking for it the other day. I usually, I mean, it's a very important drawing to me. Mm. I remember it was actually in two parts because I didn't get the bottom part right. I had to draw it a second time. It's essentially a blue and white drawing of Sydney Harbour. Very straightforward. Mm-hmm. What, with like the bridge and the opera house? Bridge, that, yep. opera house, boats. Yep. And I made 12 T-shirts to give to the press who were coming for that exhibitions. And people liked them very much, especially Marion von Adelstein, who was the writer for Vogue magazine. And she wrote a very nice thing about them. She said, you can hang a don on your wall or a don on yourself. There's an integrity to everything he touches. So it was a really nice thing mm. for her to say. Mm. And suddenly I thought, well, we'll make some more. Uh, my secretary, Kate, who was with me for 30 years, we had... Uh, a little office in North Sydney, Ridge Street, where I opened the Art Director's Gallery because I, I, didn't, I wasn't ready to call it the Kendone Gallery because I needed to see whether I could make it work. Mm. So, Kate, I hung a T-shirt on a coat hanger from the tree outside and Kate had a basket beside her desk with a few T-shirts in it. And with Billy Blue magazine, they wanted me to do the covers for Billy Blue magazine. Well, not everyone, but I did a few covers. And I always said, well, I'll give you the cover. I'll let you use the cover, but you have to give me space in the magazine. Mm -hmm. So I was using my advertising knowledge, I suppose, Mm. to take a small ad to show the T-shirt. So every now and then, someone would come in to Kate and buy the T-shirt. I even remember Bruce Beresford coming in one day to buy Sydney Harbour T-shirt. I think they were $20. So at the time, nobody was really doing anything like that? No one was doing anything. Like there was no billabong in those days or anything? No, there was no billabong. There was none of that. And so... What what, what gave you the idea of doing the T-shirt in the first place? Well, because I loved Sydney and obviously I loved Sydney Harbour and there wasn't anything like it. And I'd already... I'd been to Acapulco, I'd been to Portofino. I knew that we could walk it, that I knew that Sydney was a very stylish place. Mm. And you needed to design something that worked with jeans that needed to be blue. Mm. So the first ones were blue on white, and then, and they used to be printed by a girl called Jan down in North Sydney. I would go down, Jan would print 30 or 40. And then I thought, well, Let's do them white and blue. Suddenly there's a choice. Uh, and then, yeah. well, let's do a sweatshirt. So all of those first things, and, and while that was happening and you could see that people were responding to them, I thought we need to be somewhere where people are, not in Ridge Street in North Sydney. Mm. So I walk, on a Sunday morning, I saw this ad in the paper and it said, Arabia Gallery, George Street, uh, lease for sale. And I figured we could have some product in the front and some art upstairs. So the product, which I was doing at that time, was simply flat things. T-shirt, sweatshirt, perio. These are just flat things. doesn't take any fashionability. It was only when Judy, my wife, got involved in the business that we went into swimwear and all kinds of clothing. And the young Japanese girls were the first to discover it. Mm. So that business started to grow. And um, Mm. 
young Japanese girls who were changing Japanese society at that time, didn't, they wanted to, to do much bolder than their mothers might have been. When they went back to Japan, they'd be carrying kendone bags. Mm. That led to the editor of a magazine company flying to Australia wanting to meet me. And he said, after all the, you know, chat, we want you to do the cover and the logo for a new magazine that's coming out for young Japanese women called Hanako. Hanako is like a girl's name. Mm. I thought he meant just the first cover. I said, mm. yeah, sure, we'll work out a deal. But what he meant was every cover. Now, magazines often fail in Japan. Hanako used my artwork on the cover every week for 13 years in Tokyo. So, that meant a whole series of young Japanese knew what I was about, which led to me having some big exhibitions. Like, I had an exhibition in Japan that travelled to seven different cities, was seen by, I think they estimate, 200,000 people. It didn't get a line in the press in Australia. Well, that's incredible, anywhere. isn't it? That's and unbelievable. And it was disappointing. It was disappointing. However, look, you move on. Well, we might as well talk about that at the moment since we're, we're sort of uh, on that topic because, you know, effectively you were ignored for a long time yes. by the art establishment in Australia. Yes. whoever they may be. Yeah, whoever they may be, which is an interesting, that's another interesting yes. question. who is that person? Who is that? But it wasn't really until, you know, 2009 when, you, when the National Portrait Gallery yeah. came along and acquired your work yes. that you were even noticed by any national institution. That's right. And you were like a superstar in Japan. That's right. And also very popular in Australia. Yes, but it, that's right. It's strange. What do you make it? of that? Well, I think that there is um, a number... Oh, gosh, I had, uh, hard for me to say, but... For instance, there was a thing recently in Look magazine, you know, the magazine comes out of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, they did a survey, or a survey was done as to who's the best-known artist in Australia. It's me. Yeah. I'm, more be I'm better known than Sydney Nolan. Uh, I'm, I'm one point ahead of Sydney Nolan, or two <laughs> points ahead of Sydney Nolan, who I expect a lot. So I'm no I'm no now I'm known, but there's still a hesitancy. Like, I don't have a painting in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It's astonishing. Now, it's astonishing. Uh, you can say that. I can feel that, but I'm not going to say it. Mm. I'm not going to say that. I often feel that I have nothing, that I shouldn't complain about anything. Look where I live. Mm. I shouldn't complain about any, anything, but I keep hoping, I'll say that, I keep hoping that one day... Um, something that I do or have done is worthy of, you know, being in an institution. Yeah. Like, I remember once, sorry, uh, there's a magazine out of Melbourne called uh, Art... It's somebody McCulloch. It's about artists oh, in yes. Australia. Yes, I know who you meant. The Art Encyclopedia of Australia. Yeah, well. Art, Art, Artist Encyclopedia of Australia. Mm. I'm there. Like f maybe ten years ago, I wasn't in it, and I was disappointed in that. Uh, of course. And yeah. and they said I wasn't in it 
because I hadn't won an art award. Well, I've got the Order of Australia. <laughs> That's right. Order of Australia's not so bad, is it? I thought that might have been well, a don't bit you of think, an award. But isn't it, doesn't it come down to this sort of weird distinction between commercial art and fine art? It does. Look, the first thing that all of those people saw of mine were very commercial things. But I did it so well, even if I say it myself, mm. and it had such an effect that in Australia I have to overcome that success. I have to overcome that to show, like... Is it a bit of the tall poppy syndrome? Oh, of course. Mm. Other people have said that. Of course. Mm. Uh, that, that is what it's, it, partly what it seems like to me. Yeah. Uh, and also, also that you haven't gone the gallery system, and no. you you've gone on your own, and you haven't have to ask anybody. You haven't have to ask. I anybody. have no. Yeah. I have no. I haven't have to ask anybody. Therefore, I have no allegiance with anybody. I I I, I I'm not beholding to anybody. Mm. So I just like to be judged by the work. In the end, that's what it should be. Well, Is the work any good? Yeah, exactly. That's ex that's what I yeah. You know, that's what everyone hopes happens. But I think I've got a funny feeling that uh, that's not always the only thing that's taken into consideration. Yeah. But another interesting thing on this topic is that um, in two thousand and twelve, you um, created a body of work which was based on the um, Japanese submarines attacking Sydney Harbour. Yeah, look, I did fifteen paintings. I was asked to be asked by the, the Mossman Gallery to do it. I was very pleased to do it. I've given them the paintings and the critics really responded well to them. Mm. And I was pleased about that. However, because it was a difficult subject about war and about death and about all mm. of that, suddenly people write seriously about the paintings. Well, write seriously about a bloody vase of flowers. Yeah. It's a matter of how well you do it. Well, you know what I wonder? Whether it's harder to write seriously about a, a vase Probably, of flowers. Probably, yes. Harder because to write, like, for instance, harder to write about Bonnard than it is about Picasso, and yet they're both giants. Mm. Both giants. Well, it's hard to write about joy and yes. pleasure and happiness because it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's viewed as, as sort of less serious. Yeah, less serious. Which is um, and it's silly, curious. And yet it's, it is... It's the most serious thing, isn't it? I mean, in the time... I haven't got much time left. I'm 77. What have I got, you know? Ten years before I start walking around in my pyjamas and, you know, you've got 30 years. <laughs> I try not to think about it. No, well, you've got more time than well, me. But you don't want to waste it. And I don't yeah. want to waste it. So I, I like to make pictures that first of all, that I like, but then that give people pleasure. And like I think we might have touched on before, don't give you everything on the first viewing a good enough and interesting enough to give you pleasure over time. Yeah, well, and I think that's definitely what your work does. I hope so. Um, and it, actually, that leads me on to talking about your recent book, which is called Ken Doan Paintings You Probably Haven't Seen. Yeah. And I've really enjoyed looking at that book. It's fantastic. And, of course, it contains a lot of paintings from 2000 onwards, and you've been prolific since that time. And, um, and of course, it contains a lot of your 
well known, the subjects you're well known for. So, you know, the Harbour Bridge, the Opera House, beach scenes. Um, but the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was um, some of your reef paintings right. because I just find them so uh, emotive because they do give that feeling of pleasure. Thank you. That underwater experience. Yeah. Yeah. Can I take you to um, your painting of Studio Reef in 2012, which is one in particular that I really like? Thank you. And it, it's basically, it's like a patchwork. Yeah. Of colour. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure that's called... Sometimes I'll name them of a reef that I've been to that has a name or uh, an area that has a name. So this one that we're looking at called Studio Reef simply is called Studio Reef because it came out of being done in the studio. It's not in the studio. I mean, it's not on the reef. In fact, sometimes in Fiji, uh, where I go a lot, I might... Uh, make a drawing almost immediately I come out of the water. And so the feeling of it is just fresh in my mind. But Studio Reef, this picture, is a much more complicated one. And yes, it is like a patchwork because some parts of all of the... You, you see under the water such beautiful things. Sometimes the tiniest little coral head will, you know, a a mauve coral head will have little pink spots on it or a fish will have such a complicated little stripes. And when you, and the picture that we're talking about, it's a reasonably large size picture. Yes, 183 by 152. And I think sometimes, you know, I like to do those bigger reef pictures so you really can lose yourself within it and never find everything in it in one go. I want you to be able to find things in that over the years. And how do you think you achieve a painting that is going to achieve that? Well... I don't think you can write a book on it and I don't think you can write it down. I think you just have to feel it. And I think it's got more to do with music. I think it's got more to do with jazz. I think it's got more to do with improvisation. It's got to do... You can't... Well, I can't. Let's just speak in my terms. I can't plan a painting like that. I can only start it and see where that adventure takes me. And the hardest thing is really finding an end. But a picture like this, sometimes I work really intensely on one particular area. And I'm sure, even though there's, there's, Bonnard never ever did any underwater pictures, I wouldn't have been able to achieve a picture like that if I had not looked at Bonnard's use and love of colour. Mm. and involvement and so it's not just one pink it's pink with a little bit of orange specks on it and some other tiny little bits of yellow and maybe a third pink over the top of it and is that something that you would develop uh, over time over time so you would come back and then add something more over that yeah like a picture like that might be a three or four month picture in the sense I might work on it for a couple of days and leave it and then come back to it yeah, and it's with, over and it time. says and it's oil and acrylic. Yes. So, would you predominantly work in acrylic to start off with? Yes, I might have put down some acrylics to start off with, and then we use oil on the top of it. 
But a lot of times now I'm using uh, water-based, it's called water-based oil, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's some paint made by uh, uh, Winsor Newton called Artisan, and it's wonderful. Yeah, I've heard of wonderful. those. Wonderful. And, what, and what, what are the benefits of that? No chemicals. Wash your brushes in water. It has all the qualities of oil. I'll show it to you when we go back to the yeah. studio. It all, has all the qualities of oil, but you don't need any chemicals. I think a lot of those chemicals are bad for you. Yeah. And I find that uh, you, you, you would be hard-pressed to see the difference between oil and, and this. Again, it's a matter of how you put it down, isn't it? It's how you use it. And there are no rules. Mm. Like, if you take a master like Gerhard Richter, He's a fantastic painter, mm. can work in all kinds of areas. Or Julian Schnabel, another great painter. Milton Avery. These are guys who found their own way of expressing what they feel about something mm. and using materials in a way that's right for them. So you can't say to somebody, you know, so people come to me like young art students say, no, I'm an artist, what are you, what are you, what's your advice? My advice is go away and paint 500 paintings. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you find yeah. your way. And you learn something from the last From one. every painting that yeah. you do. Do you ever look at a painting and think, how did I do that? I do, I do, I do. Yes, because the, some of the best times is when you kind of lose yourself totally within the picture. And then, especially over time, you might look back at something you've done four or five years ago and you think, gee, that's not so bad. I really like that part there. That's good. Yeah, yeah. so I didn't know I did. You knew you did it, but you appreciate it over time. Yeah. The opposite of that, sorry, yeah. the opposite yeah. of that is that when some people come in, if you've just finished a picture or something in an exhibition, and they'll say, oh, I really like that bit up in the corner, that blue bit. You think, no, I don't like that bit. That's not the good bit. <laughs> That's not the good bit. The good bit's further down. But Isn't you, that but, funny that but other people It's up to see. them. Yeah. It's art. I know I've said this endlessly. It's half a conversation. Mm. It's what you feel about exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, do you think... Oh, we were talking... You know, you were showing me this great painting in your home just earlier called Dr. Reef. Dr. White's Reef. Oh, Dr. White's Reef, that's it. Dr. White's Reef. And we it's were looking here. at it and I loved it. Yeah, it is in this book. And I, and I really love that painting. Um, and in particular, what we were talking about... Yeah, let me just get it. I think it's earlier, actually. Yeah, I think it's earlier, too. Ah, oh, there we go. Um... In case people are driving while they're listening to this and can't look <laughs> right. at their phone or their computer, right. just briefly, it is a it is a large work. Um, uh, it's one eighty two by two forty four. It's quite large, and it's uh, like a reef painting. It's, there's a lot of objects all over the painting, like sort of well, suggest it's semi abstract, really, yes. isn't it? Uh, reminiscent of sea creatures and looking under the water, but in a very abstract way. And one of the things that we were talking about uh, was the, the variation of marks yeah. and making marks. Yeah. And like there were some sections where you obviously were using like a house painting brush, like yeah. a large brush, yeah. and other areas that are quite, uh, you know, more delicate. 
Well, this is a picture that I probably started about five years ago, and it was totally covered in paint. And I hadn't actually abandoned it. I don't abandon anything, but I had put it aside. In fact, I'd shoved it up underneath the house so it was flat in a very narrow area. It has started off as a very overall reef painting with, you know, totally covered canvas. Anyway, so I abandoned it for a couple of years probably. Mm. Anyway, I brought it into the studio and I looked at it and I got a big can of white paint and I started to work very fast of eliminating things and therefore leaving shapes. So it's an exercise in very um, quick decisions, almost before you can really think too deeply about it. And so the white, that's why it's called Dr. White. It's the Dr. White is the paint. Dr. White, and I left then the objects and the shapes that I was interested in, then I started to work back on it again. But there are some parts, like there's a big kind of green, swishy, globbly thing in the middle, and you can see that the green has picked up some of the white paint underneath and given it a kind of slightly transparent, lucent, translucent feeling. Mm. Then there's some other areas where clearly I've worked on the top of it. There's some strange yellowy-orange uh, things coming out of a red shape that is obviously paint that's come straight from the tube. Yeah. There's a yellowy part in the middle where I picked up a big fat yellow crayon and rubbed it over the surface. So it is a painting about the joy of marks, mm. about the joy of marks. But it's, I reckon when you do a picture like this, it's a bit like multiple chess. You're like playing four or five games at the one time because even though you might be working on the far right hand or the far right hand corner, top corner, putting a little bit of sort of strange mm, pale teal around some black spots, your eye is thinking that really maybe right over in the other corner you need a bit of black. So um, mm. I think for me anyway in a painting like this you're really jumping from side to side and there are some parts that you can only achieve if you do them very fast there's a there's a strange bluey white globby kind of thing down in the bottom corner where one color has picked up the other color mm. and you work fast into it and look it's a matter of whether you like it or not yeah. and you like it and then you stop and you move away there's another painting I wanted to talk about, which is also a, neat, a reef painting, and um, it's, I love it, actually. It's called uh, Edge of Reef. Edge of the Reef, yeah. Yeah, which is a, is, is a painting where you've basically split the canvas in two and you've got the reef on one side and you've got this beautiful, luminous blue ocean on the other side. And I just found it really interesting because, because of that composition. When you swim to the edge of the reef, the edge becomes very, very important. It's where you move away from the coral and all of the intricacies that's happening and all of the growth 
and then suddenly it drops away and you can't see the bottom and you're, you are in the ocean and you're conscious always of a few fish swimming around. So, yes, it's an interesting picture. I like this one. And it's, again, I think it's an example of how one side, there's a lot going on. Yeah. There's a continuous um, a number of patterns and shapes, and which is, which is what a coral reef is about. And on the other side, it's really just a few little fish, but they balance one another, even though there's not much happening in one and there's a lot happening in the other. I hope it holds together yeah. as a painting. You've also done a lot of black, black predominantly black paintings, yeah, yeah. which like yeah. night dive night paintings, dive, night dive. and Lovely they picture. are beautiful because those colours that are in there just glow out of them. I love the night dive series. I have done a few of them, and obviously you don't not you don't make it while you're under the water because it's night. You don't even do a drawing. You have to do it maybe the next day or maybe the next week or maybe the next month or maybe the next year. But it's the memory of the night dive that when you go down, you can see little iridescent pieces of colour, little luminous pieces of colour, strange shapes, a little bit scary in some areas. Mm. And you have to paint all of that and then you have to do the black. You have to finish. You, the night dive pictures are all the, are about risk. You have to risk destroying everything because when you finish the painting, or let's say you've covered the whole canvas, then you pick up, or I pick up, black enamel, sometimes soft with extra turps so it's not very strong, mm. sometimes uh, full strength. And you have to very quickly, very quickly eliminate a lot of things. So the risk is you'll eliminate too much or you won't get it right. So you cannot seriously think, oh, I'll make that shape there because you'll, you have to work at white hot speed. Be Why do you have to do it quickly? Well, because otherwise the enamel will make an... It'll look too worked yeah. and the enamel will get thick and globby in some areas. And some of the best ones of the night dive pictures, I think, are where the enamel paint was quite thin because because you picked up quite a bit of terps and you can see uh, the shapes that were underneath that makes you feel like when you are doing the night dive, obviously it's what you see in front of you and out of the corner of your eyes close up, but there are these shapes and things moving slightly in the distance. Are they frightening things or are they just fish slightly out of view? Mm. So, yeah, I like doing those night dive pictures. Is it important to you to have a, a ver quite a large variation of marks? I think in a picture like this it works better. It's like a number of notes. Notes is like a piece of music that there's a lot of different... It's like playing with lots of instruments, but you, they all can't play at the same sound. You have to control them. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of times... The difficult thing is we, and this is a very good interview, I mean, it's one of the nicest interviews I've done. You know what you're talking about. But we're using words 
to try and describe something that is not words. Yeah, that's it. It's not words. Right. It's a painting. That's exactly right. It's very hard, and especially for people who are listening who uh, can't even see it. That's right. <laughs> Even so, harder. If you it's can't even harder see for it. them. But That's also, right. you use you also scratch into also yeah. scratch into paint yeah. and get that really you know thin yeah. fine line. I, I'm exhausted when I finished a painting like this, but really satisfied. This is a this is for me one of the great pleasures of art. One of the great pleasures of working mm. that you're absolutely buggered when you're finished, and it's a performance that only you see. No one sees you do this. I'm listening to music at the same time. Maybe Ray Charles, maybe Jerry Lee Lewis. I'm working fast. I'm on my own. It's good. Yeah. It's and good fun. talking about what it's like in the studio, um, you just mentioned you like having music. Yes. Well, do you have a routine that you would... Uh... I walk into the studio. I have more than one picture that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. For me, I told you the thing is I get up in the morning, I read the papers early, I feed the birds at the top part of the house and then I go straight to the studio. And I might be there for a long time or I might be there for a short time. I need to see what I've been working on the night before, see whether the fairies have been there during the night. Uh, you know, sometimes, like, as this morning, the paintings that I worked on yesterday were still wet, so I hadn't seen them uh, vertical, so I picked them up. I knew straight away, without thinking that I needed to put some black spots on one corner of a picture, so I did that. Then I came down to have a swim. If I wasn't doing this lovely interview with you, I'd be working in the studio till about 12 or 1. Then I'd have lunch, then I'd sleep for maybe an hour, then I muck around and I start work again about five, five to six, maybe 4.30, but five to six or maybe five to seven. Right. I think the uh, early afternoon is, an, for me, absolute waste of time. Mm. I don't think it's a very, it's, it's not a powerful time for me. Mm. The morning and the early evening is good for me. Mm. But it, it's, if, you, if I have a painting beside where I'm watching television and falling asleep, and I wake up and I know that there's something wrong about it, I need to go back down to the studio and work on it then. Mm. Mm. Not wait till the morning, work on it then. Because you might lose that. You might lose it. Yeah. And that's the hard thing. That's what you can't teach. You can only under, you, you, and, 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 and it changes for everybody. Mm. I can't, with, yeah. your, with your work, I mean, I, all I would say is I think it's important that you have your work around you mm. so that you can see it. Not necessarily looking straight out, see it out of the corner of your eye. Yeah. Walk past it when you go to the loo, see it there. What sort of thing will jump out at you? Oh, I don't know, a shape or a, mm. or, or a mark or something that's a bit, you know, mm. crappy. But, you know, sometimes I look at paintings when you look and look and look at a painting and you, you see suddenly, say, look at a portrait, and then you suddenly notice they've put lime green <laughs> under the nose and you never, ever saw Sorry. that. And I sort of think, 
If I had painted that, yeah. that lime green would have yeah. bugged me so much yeah. that I would have had You'd to, have had get to rid change it. it. Yeah. But there you go. It's yeah. that lime green yeah, that, that made it. Made that made the thing work. So isn't there a risk that you're going to get rid of something? Yeah, <laughs> so you never there know. is. Yeah, there is. Oh, and there's a risk that you'll go too far, that you'll bugger it up by doing things on it that you know that you should have left. Yeah. But take that picture. There's a picture up there. A more straightforward picture of some palm trees and things like that. I told you I'm going to paint over it. Mm. When you leave, I'm going to paint over that. Mm. I might paint the same painting on top of it fresher. It's too worked. Mm. I've spent too much time trying to work it out. But now that I've worked it out, I know how to do it, and I know that it'll be better fresher. Well, also, I want to talk about something slightly off the track, um, but... I've, I've noticed you're a very optimistic person. Yes. And you've, you've written in your book um, about a few sort of lows in your life, including sure. recent sort of about with prostate cancer yeah. and financial woes with yeah. the accountant. Um, but you don't seem to let it get you down. Do you have any philosophy or tips of how to uh, bounce back from things? You move on. You have to move on. Mm -hmm. As far as the prostate cancer is concerned... Um, the, you know, I went for a regular checkup with my doctor. I was about to walk out. He said, oh, wait a minute, what's this? The PSA has gone up. Better have a biopsy. I have a biopsy. Uh, the guy called you on Monday and he says, oh, you've got cancer. The first thing you do is sit down because it shocks you a little bit. Mm. But I know that my uh, father had prostate cancer, didn't kill him, so did Judy's father. And there are various options that a man can have at that point in time. I wanted to do something about it. Yeah. So doing something about it means having it removed. Um, it's taking control. Taking control, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So I was operated on a Friday. Uh, I was home on Sunday. I started those Japanese paintings on Wednesday. And so I then painted those Japanese pictures. I did nothing for about three months other than those paintings. I really concentrated on them. Yeah. And there's not only there's some physical things that you've got to come to terms with, but there's a few emotional things you have to come to terms with as well. And of all people, I was talking to Billy Connolly about prostate cancer not so long ago. Um, we, we, we agreed that... Sex is still possible, but you need at least 24 hours' notice. A hypnotist, the, Lut <laughs> the Luton Girls Choir, and uh, three Tahitian girls, and then everything's fine. Oh, so you have to cope with things with humour. No one escapes tragedy. Any long-term relationship, and Judy and I have, you know, been uh, together for more than 50 years, and, you know, I've said this in book, there are hills and valleys. Mm. Some you can get through, some you don't. Mm. What you do have to come to terms with is that you can't go back. You can't change anything. You can't change a thing that you can't change what you said, you can't change what you did, mm. you can't change what's happened. So seeing the big picture for me, I shouldn't be complaining or sad about anything. Look where I live. Mm. Look what I'm doing. 
Uh, you know, I have everything. My family very healthy, my kids are fine. We're, we're comparatively healthy. I shouldn't complain about anything. Mm. Well... More painting, I think, is the answer. <laughs> yes, more painting. Well, I think that's the answer to everything, isn't yeah, it? it? Is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It has to be. Well, Ken, it's been just such a privilege to be here and see your home and see your studio and talk to you about your unique and wonderful career. So thank you so much for your time today. Look, it's been one of the best, seriously, one of the best interviews because you know what you're talking about. And a lot of times I've been interviewed many times and often they're a bit trivial, but I really appreciate it. I appreciate your understanding of the work. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Ken. I took some video um, of Ken in his studio, which will be up on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel in the next couple of weeks, where you'll see some paintings he was working on at the time. Uh, Just search Talking With Painters on YouTube. As you know, you can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and listen to the show on your podcast app or any way you get your podcasts. So subscribe to get the show directly onto your phone or onto your mobile device. And thank you for your messages and comments on social media. I love hearing from you, as you know. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Although I can draw in a reasonably disciplined way, I don't make disciplined, I don't make paintings about what it really looks like. Mm. I make paintings about what it feels like. Yeah. And using that as a step-off point to make a painting.